These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him up. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep, and all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Thanks, Jeff. Um, Adriel, would you like to pray for us and speak to us? I'd love to. Thank you so much. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God and that you instruct us in your ways. I pray for us to have open hearts now as we hear what you have to say, Father. I pray that we'd be open to being challenged by um, a truth that we mightn't have heard before. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Joel, I can share my screen, can't I? Okay. Can everyone see that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. brilliant. Good stuff. Thank you. Um, I've been so envious of your time in Genesis so far, and I wonder what you've made of it now that you're a few passages in. You know, we're learning these big uh, truths of who God is, you know, why he's made what he's made, and how we um, as humans fit in. And they're big truths, but by no means simple truths, are they? You know, these big fundamental building blocks of God's teaching are rich and nuanced and complex. And in studying Genesis, I've been finding it's a text that richly rewards our attention. And I'm sure you've already been struck by um, how much further the text leads us 
than the children's storybook versions or the on-screen adaptations. And it will be the same for God's account of Noah. So uh, here's my encouragement as we look at the Noah account over these next two weeks, uh, that we pay attention, expecting God to teach us, uh, even over Zoom, and that we would allow God to shock us as we're confronted by what he has to say. Uh, It's worth tracing the progression of the story so far before we consider how Noah's account fits in. Now, the fall back in chapter three, it's been the big turning point, hasn't it? Adam and Eve are disobeying God's command, being exiled from life with him in Eden. And now we're exploring life outside the garden. It's a, it's a world of murder. We saw that back in chapter four with Cain and Abel. It's a world that rejects God and puts its trust in cultural and technological advances and replaces God's rule with human tyrants. We saw that with Lamech. And it's a world of death. We saw that last week with the genealogies and that drumbeat of death. And he died and he died and he died. Life outside the garden is grim. But, I mean, this shouldn't surprise us too much, should it? Because actually... It's all that you and I have ever known, life outside the garden. And last week culminated with God's grim assessment of the state of affairs in chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So outside the garden of Eden, well, humanity is spiralling into greater and greater evil. So I think the question we're left with as um, we're starting this new section of Genesis is, well, how will God deal with a world gone wrong? You may be familiar with the broad shape of the Noah account. So God destroys his creation with a flood, um, sparing only Noah and those who join him on his ark, this giant boat that Noah builds. And This week, we're going to focus on chapters six and seven, or the rising waters. And next week, we'll look at chapters eight and nine as the waters abate. And here's what I think this passage is saying this week. That the world's big problem is humanity and God will act to judge us. The way that he judges us is by saving the faithful and blotting out all else. So firstly, the world's big problem is humanity. You may have gleaned some of this as we read through today's passage. But I think if we're really going to feel the full effect of this diagnosis that we're evil, we'll need to go back to chapter one. So chapter one of Genesis's opening section of God's revelation. It's where the creator God is forming and filling a place for his people to live But it's not merely a habitation to just enable subsistence or survival. God is providing a good habitation for us. It's a habitation that's finely tuned. It's carefully curated for the purpose of humans enjoying life with God forever. And as God lovingly forms this land for his people to inhabit, as he proceeds with this uh, cosmic recipe you might say with each step we are met with that repeated refrain that god saw it was good 
God looks at that world that is made in chapter one, uh, complete with the humans who dwell in it. And he says it was very good. In the biblical Hebrew, tov me'od. I've been uh, brushing up on a bit of biblical Hebrew on YouTube. And um, the teacher encourages you every so often with a tov me'od. And it comes from Genesis 1. Very good. And in chapter 1, God looks down and he sees this home that he's lovingly created for his people to be fruitful and to multiply. It's a very good land. It's a world fit for people ready to fill it with the love and the service of God. But what does God see in chapter 6 in our passage today? Well, he sees a very different picture. In chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in verse 12, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So how has the fall in chapter 3 affected the world? Well, it's it's set a place that was was very good to a place that's very bad. It's become a violent place of corruption where once it was this restful place of relationship with God. You know, we've only moved three chapters since the garden. That's one, one page flick in my Bible. But it's as though we're in a totally different world by the time we're in our passage today. The world is no longer very good. And the author of Genesis shows us the depths of this human evil in another way. You may uh, recall the Lord's command to Adam and Eve to fill the earth. Well, humans have been filling the earth, but not with worshippers of God. In verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. This Genesis 6 world was full of violence, full of wrongdoing and justice, full of evil and godlessness. And what does God make of it? Well, you would have seen last week, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And in verse 7, he says, I am sorry that I have made them. Uh, God is deeply, deeply grieved. Because humanity outside the garden is in ruins. And as it spreads and advances and it spreads and advances, well, it spreads and it advances its own ruin. And in this way, well, the Genesis 6 world, it's very much like the London 2020 world. Every intention of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. And you might find God's verdict terribly offensive. I think it's natural for us to to recoil at this statement. But it's a ground floor truth that the Bible is teaching us in Genesis 6. Uh, The theologians call this the doctrine of total depravity, which basically means that no one does good, not even one. That even the notion of a humankind being inherently good at its core is a myth. And how this runs contrary to anything we're likely to hear from a popular source today, doesn't it? 
Now, a point of clarification, this isn't to say that every individual is doing all of the evil available to them at any given point. You know, many of us will manage leaving Tesco without shoplifting or driving our cars home without mowing down every pedestrian on the way. No, rather, this doctrine of total depravity recognises that there is no part of a human's thinking or behaviour that is free from some godless evil ambition. God says that every intention of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. And doesn't this declaration rule out anyone claiming to be a good person? You know, Joel and I uh, would go to Spitalfields on a Sunday afternoon and speak to people about Jesus. And it was amazing how quick uh, people are to try and shut the conversation down and say, "I I don't need saving. I'm a good person. And maybe you've heard this response too. I mean, what a tragedy. It's, it's a self-delusion, isn't it? Because Genesis 6 says, there are no good people. We're all evil. We all need saving. And it's a kindness that God would tell us. If we fail to understand Genesis 6, we are doomed to a self-delusion. The Nobel Prize winning writer, uh, William Golding, you might know him as the author of Lord of the Flies, I'm not sure if it's part of the high school syllabus here in the UK, but it is in Australia. Uh, he was a humanist in his youth, and he believed that man was inherently good, had the potential for moral perfection, if not for the social structures that corrupted him. But his outlook changed as he lived through the Second World War. And in one essay, he wrote, <clears throat> anyone who moved through those years, that is the years of the Second World War, without understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey, must have been blind or wrong in the head. So even a secular humanist like Golding was forced to face the truth when he just looked more closely at the world. We all have those moments where we've done something unspeakably self-interested or stupid or cruel and I'm really tempted to tell myself, well, you know, Adriel, you just, you just had a blip. You know, you're a pretty good person deep down. You just had an off moment. But when we've heard God's verdict on humanity, well, actually those moments expose us. You know, we get a glimpse into what we really are, what's under that Botox and the silicone of that public persona that we work so hard to maintain. You know, if you care to recall the moments of your darkest moral failures. Those weren't moments where a mask went on, but when the mask came off, you know, we are evil. And if we fail to understand this, we're doomed to self-delusion, but even a self-destruction if we spurn Jesus's offer of safety because of it. And we'll also be outraged at the thought of a God judging it'll feel unjust unwarranted when really we should be prizing the safety that he offers which is where we're headed in our next point so uh, now is a good time to tune back in if your mind has wandered slightly it happens to the best of us Uh, we're on our second point now the world's big problem is humanity and god will act to judge us god will act to judge us i'm reading from verse 13 of chapter 6 
And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Uh, God doesn't turn a blind eye to corruption. He's seen what he's seen, and he doesn't pretend that he hasn't. He won't let his world go unchecked. And you might have noticed that there are two aspects of God's dealings. So firstly, God saves the faithful. He instructs Noah, he warns him of the flood and instructs him to build this ark, this giant boat, that he might be saved. He saves the faithful. And secondly, God blots out all else. The earth and all of its unfaithful inhabitants will be judged in this cataclysmic destruction. And we'll consider both of these aspects of God's judgment individually. So firstly, he saves the faithful. Uh, The protagonist in this account, Noah, well, he's been singled out. You might have noticed that as we were reading through. He's singled out in this world of wickedness as one who is faithful to the Lord. In verse 9 of chapter 6, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And perhaps that phrase caught your eye, this walking with God. And only two individuals have been described as those who walked with God at this point in Genesis. Uh, You may recall Adam in the garden before his fall, walking with God. And Enoch last week in that genealogy of chapter 5, that uh, one bar of rest, if you will, in the drumbeat of death, a man who was taken by God before his demise. And so I think we've been trained by Moses, trained by the author of Genesis to see that walking with God is the way towards life. Noah's depicted as one who knows and loves God. He, along with his wife and his three sons and their wives, they're going to be saved from the coming flood, seemingly because of Noah's faithfulness, the Lord showing him favor. And Noah's obedience is really, really closely linked with his safety. So his life depends on him listening to God and following God's instructions. Uh, Verses 14 through 21 of chapter 6, they contain the Lord's instructions for building the ark, assembling the pairs of every animal and storing up food for the coming months on the ark. And you can imagine how dangerous it would be to get the ark design wrong, you know, or to make the inappropriate provisions. But in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that that God commanded him. And we get this comment repeated. Uh, Three more times in verse 5, verse 9, and verse 16, uh, Noah did what God had commanded him. And it's clear at this point that the author is showing us the key to salvation from judgment. It's walking with God, listening to God, living under his good rule. The Lord will save those who listen to the warning of the coming judgment and live with him as their God. But there's a nuance to this. And for us to understand this rightly, we'll need to assess the second way, the second aspect of God's action in the Noah account. He saves the faithful and blots out all else. God makes his plans clear to Noah and he lets us in as readers. In verse 13 of chapter 6, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. 
Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. He explains that to Noah by what means he's going to do this as well. In verse 17, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. And it seems the author is not just keen on us understanding that the flood is coming as judgment, but that the creator God is its executor, if you will, that the flood is not this random event born out of universal chaos. No, this is a deliberate and planned judgment from God on wicked humanity. And many will be wondering at this point, you know, whether Noah's account is one of fact or fiction. And it's worth mentioning that the ancient world documented this great flood widely. Uh, The text presents itself as history, doesn't it, with its exact details and dates. We're not dealing with a text that is presented as myth. Uh, Several ancient Near Eastern texts feature the explanations of how this flood came about and why, you know, and they, they do it through the lenses of various pagan gods. But the author of Genesis, Moses, he's giving us the history of how our creator God acted all those years ago. And in doing so, he's not simply showing destruction. You know, if it was a random chaotic flood, you'd just talk about destruction. No, Moses wants to talk about a decreation of what has been created. So let me show you what I mean from the text. In verse 11 of chapter 7, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, you see that historical uh, detail there. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. So that separation of of sea and sky that God made on the second day of creation, it's undone. It's creating a mass flood. And in verse 19, uh, the waters prevailed so mightily on earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. So that separation of, of sea and land that God made on the third day of creation, it's reversed. And once more, there's just water on the face of the earth. In verse 23, um, he, uh, God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Those fifth and sixth day filling of the land and sky with bustling living creatures, well, it's reversed until we are left with a formless, unfilled world once more. How how does God deal with the world's gone wrong? He decreates what he has created. And I think what we're meant to understand here is that the world, it's, it's, it's so far gone, it's so problematic, that the only option is a factory reset. You know, you might have a problem on your phone or your laptop, that you can fix with a few clicks in here and there, but sometimes it just needs to be totally, totally reset to be taken back to a new beginning. And that's what we're seeing here. But this isn't simply just hitting rewind on the creation narrative from Genesis 1. So if we had some hypothetical video of creation week from day one through six, it's not like we've just gone rewind, six, five, four, three, two, one. No, this reversal has required mass destruction. The waters are no longer virgin waters, but are filled with the corpses of those who just days before were eating and drinking 
and preoccupied with their careers and relationships and their fitness. They and their homes and their heirlooms are now just debris in the water. And as we finish chapter seven, well, the ark is the only living reminder that this isn't day one of creation week. Noah's survival, it, it stands as a sign of God's commitment to his creation, evidence of his mercy towards the faithful and the clear proof that the only way to make it through judgment unscathed is to walk with God. So what's the significance today? You might be wondering why we're dissecting this piece of primeval history. You know, surely there's bigger fish to fry than analysing the past. You might even have concluded that we're ourselves on the verge of an even worse global wipeout, you know, maybe due to the threat of nuclear warfare or climate change or COVID-19. And I want to say that you're, I think you're partially right because we are on the verge of an even worse global wipeout. But it's one just like Noah's. The biggest threat to mankind is our creator God who will bring about an even greater judgment through his son. That action that God took in the days of Noah, his saving of the faithful and his blotting out of all else. I mean, this is just a trailer for what is to come. A day when the world will be decreated from its molten core all the way through to the thinnest reaches of its stratosphere and its inhabitants with it. And only those who walk with God, specifically those who follow the Lord Jesus, will be saved. Jesus, uh, God's son, God's king, speaks of the final judgment in Matthew 24. You'll see it come up on the screen there. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So you you see what Jesus is saying here. You know, we might look back at the story of Noah and think, Genesis 6, you know, what, what a strange period of history. You know, what's next? Well, the answer is that something greater than Noah's flood is coming. A greater final destruction brought about by the Lord Jesus. A greater destruction. But someone greater than Noah is here offering a greater salvation. Uh, The original readers would have understood God's mercy in this story, his commitment to provide an offspring, a child from Eve, who will bring rest from a world of wickedness. You might remember that back from Genesis chapter 3. And we're finishing this week halfway through the story, aren't we? With Noah saved by God, but immersed in this eerie quiet as he floats upon the the face of the water in this ark surrounded by nothing. But it's evidence of God's promise of an offspring, a child who will bring us rest. And we'll think more about that next week. Uh, But even at this point, I think we can be clear on the answer to our question. We asked, how will God deal with the world gone wrong? Well, he will bring destruction to all who oppose him and salvation through his promised offspring his promised child. 
what hope of safety is there for evil humanity for you and me? Well, we need to see the Lord's provision of his promised son in Jesus, the greater Noah, and turn to him for safety. I have some discussion questions I'll leave up here uh, that we can discuss in groups. But um, for now, why don't I lead us in prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your mercy uh, in telling us what we're really like, that we really are evil, we really are in need of help. We pray that we would be convicted of this truth, even if it's hard to bear. And I pray that we would not be complacent about the coming judgments, that we would listen to Jesus. We'd be those who trust in your offspring, Jesus, who offers us safety, who offers victory over evil, and we would walk in his ways and have safety in his name. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.